Parashas Re'eh has a reprise of the laws of Kashrus that we first had in Parashas Shmini. Not all the laws of Kashrus are here, but a lot of the most famous and prominent ones are here. What animals you're allowed to eat, what animals you're not allowed to eat, what birds you're allowed to eat, what birds you're not allowed to eat, what fish you're allowed to eat, what fish you're not allowed to eat. Basar B'chalav, the prohibition against cooking, eating, deriving benefit from meat and milk together some of the best-known laws of kashrus. Now, there are a lot of halachas of kashrus in Tarash Baksav, in Tarash Baalpeh, Midaraisa, Midrabanan. They make up a good chunk of Shulchan Aruch Yeridea, ritual laws that we have from salting meat, blood, shechita, to Basar uh, mixtures, bugs, checking for bugs, uh, kosher meat in general, species, and so on. Beyond the technical ritual core of kashrus, there is, of course, a, an array of other concerns that have, gone, that, have, that have, over the years, gone into the question of what food a Jew is supposed to consume. Everything from economic considerations to social considerations, halachic, other halachic considerations, hashkafic considerations, political considerations. I want to discuss today some, a survey a little bit of the, the history and the halacha regarding the intersection of these other concerns and kashras, and we'll focus on this question from a number of different angles, but we'll, uh, w- including we'll deal with questions like, should a kashras agency give a heksher to a company that's violating the halacha in the food preparation, in other aspects of its operations, doesn't matter if it's the halachas of the food itself or other aspects like Shabbos or the laws of modesty of Ebenezer. And on the contrary, is, is, a, com- is a company mechuyiv not to give a heksher to such a company? We, there, there are three possible positions in, in, in various cases that we're going to consider. They should give the heksher, they should not give the heksher. It's a neutral matter, they can do whatever they want. So we're going to discuss a variety of scenarios that have arisen over the centuries going back to the Talmud and then uh, going down to modern times, questions that have arisen about whether food is to be regarded as kosher, whether food should be certified as kosher, if there are violations outside the problems, outside the strict laws of kashras that we see in our parsha, how does that affect the, the, kosher, the kosher status of the food? How does, that, how does that affect the ability of a Jew, the permissibility of a Jew to consume such food? We should, know, we should mention also before we start, as we've discussed previously, the whole idea of third-party certifying organizations that we have today that are considered standard and normal and obligatory today is not something the Talmud has much to say about. Under Talmudic law, a Jew, someone, <coughs> someone who keeps the Torah, a Jew in good standing who keeps the laws of kashras, keeps the Torah in general, is trusted regarded, regarding the kashras of his food, a store can self-certify, a butcher could self-certify and say, my meat is kosher, my food is kosher, it was shechted properly, it was salted properly. There's no, there is virtually no discussion of a third-party third party certifying organization until relatively recently. Eidach and Bisurin, as we discussed, a single witness is trusted, even if he has conflict of interest, even if his, even if his own financial interests are at stake. In the Talmud, the main concern with people not being trusted is not because, again, in, in civil law, in, in, in family law, in Chosh and Mishpah, and Ebenezer, then we have rules of Negev Adover. But in Kashrus, in Isser Beheter, 
Typically, it does not matter, with certain limited exceptions, it does not matter whether someone's own interests are at stake. A butcher can tell you, I, I shechted the cow, it's kosher. I checked the lungs, it has no trefa, it's kosher. Mikradin, that's all fine. In the Talmud, the only real case where you need a third party, some kind of certification, is when you're dealing with someone who is not trustworthy, someone who's not a Jew, doesn't keep the laws of kosher, doesn't, doesn't know the laws of kosher, doesn't keep the laws of kosher. A Jew, a Jew who, doesn't, who doesn't observe the laws of kosher, he can't be trusted because he, he doesn't practice kosher. But in general, Jews in good standing, Jews in good standing are, are trusted on kashrus. Today, we, of course, we, we, we generally require third-party certification for several reasons. First of all, complexity. Industrial kashrus has become so complicated that a, a layman, someone who's not an expert, is apt to make mistakes. He may not realize all the... Certainly the complicated industrial ingredients, but the equipment, the, all the situations that arise, someone who's not trained and not expert won't be, uh, won't be able to get everything right. But moreover, even if you have someone who is trained, even if you have uh, a rabbi, a trained posek who decides to go into the, into the food industry, we would typically want him to get a third-party Certification, certainly by, by our lights, we, we, we know the way we do things in the modern world is we want, we want, uh, we want outside, outside auditing, outside certification. That's the way the modern world runs in general, and that's the way we want kashrus to run as well. A fascinating question, is that actually required? Is that just strongly recommended? Topic for another day. We discussed that once in the previously, but the, the point I'm making is that we're going to be discussing the modern questions are going to have to do with can, should, must a kashrus agency pull its certification for details that are outside the strict technical question of the kashrus of the food? I'm just noting that we're not going to find really anything about kashrus agencies in the Talmud and the early sources because there were no kashrus agencies or, or third-party certifying, uh, third-party certifiers in the early period, so we'll have to apply you know, principles and concepts that we find in, the, in other contexts in the earlier in the earlier part of our tradition and try to apply it to the modern scenario where third-party agencies have the power to certify and decertify an establishment. So first of all, we should note that in the Talmud itself, there are a couple of famous examples of where the laws of Kashrus were essentially used as, by Chazal, by the rabbis of the Talmud, the rabbis of the Mishnah and the Talmud were used as tools to, uh, as tools to accomplish certain goals of social policy, religious social policy. Two famous examples are Stam Yainam, Yain Esach is Asr Mikra Din, wine that was actually poured, libated for idolatry, is Asr Mikra Din, Medaraisa, but Stam Yainam, wine that was handled by non-Jews, but we don't know that he poured it, uh, that he poured it as a libation. That's called Stam Yainam, it's Asr, that's why kashras of wine is so important. The Gemara actually has conflicting, different explanations for why Chazal prohibited that Tassimidrabanan, and the, the Gemara actually has conflicting explanations for why they made this Gzeira. One of the reasons given is They prohibited wine out of a desire to avoid intermarriage. You drink with someone, you get close to them, you become friendly, you socialize, you, the barriers between you and them come down, and you end up marrying his daughter, so Chazal, the wine is absolutely kosher on a, technical, on a technical level. The wine, again, wine is complicated by the fact that there's an additional concern of, that it was actually used for Avodah Exactly how these two concerns are interrelated is, is complex, but the 
Some Gemaras at least say that the reason for the prohibition against Damyenam is Mishum Pinoseim, that there was a social policy Chazal felt was appropriate, a, a policy of maintaining barriers, maintaining distance between Jews and non-Jews, because it can lead to, to the terrible problem of intermarriage, and Chazal prohibited Stam, prohibited Stam Yenam out of a desire to, uh, to uphold that, that separation. Another example is the laws of Bishal Akum and Pas Akum. You're not allowed to eat, a Jew is not allowed to eat food that was cooked by non-Jews. He's also not allowed to eat bread that was baked by non-Jews. Over the years, beginning of the Talmud, the prohibition against eating bread that was baked by non-Jews has largely fallen by the wayside. There were a number of major exceptions that were carved out by the Gemara, by the Rishonim, by the Achronim. And today, Hasidim are still somewhat strict about it. That's why you see Pas Yisrael marked on a lot of brands with Hamish Hechshers, but Hamish Hechsherim, but by and large, non-Hasidim are not meticulous about Pas Yisrael. There are two times of the year where even non-Hasidim are or recommended they should be machmer. One is Aseris Mechuva, where there is a widespread custom to be meticulous about Pas Yisrael, not eating Pasakum. The other is Shabbos. The Mishabur actually recommends, based on the Akronim, that on Shabbos a person should avoid, should avoid Pasakum. That's actually one of the reasons that there was a, a custom arose to bake challah for Erev Shabbos, so that people should be able to have an alternative to avoid, to avoid the need to rely on the heterim of Pasakum. So Shabbos, Yontif, and Aseris Mechuva, Many people are still strict, but by and large, Pasakum is not widely followed outside the Hasidic world. The other, the other issue, though, Bishalakum, that is still fully binding. Bishalakum is a very serious halacha. People are sometimes not aware of the ramifications of it. You have nannies or so on in your house. All kinds of questions can come up if they cook food, prepare food. But Bishalakum is usher. So what's the reason for Bishalakum and Pasakum? The Gemara tries to figure it out. The Gemara brings Psukim, but eventually the Gemara concludes that it is only Midrabanan, it is a rabbinic enactment of Sukkim Aras Machta. What is the reason for the enactment? So Rashi, in one place Rashi says, V'kulum Mishum Chasnus, again, just like Stam Yenam, it's to avoid fraternization, intermarriage. Elsewhere Rashi says the reason is to avoid eating treif, that if you spend too much time with the non-Jews, eventually they're going to give you something which actually is treif, which is not kosher. Either way, it's some kind of gzera, and at least one version of the gzera, again, is because of chasnus, because of intermarriage, that's what the Rambam brings. After he goes through in Machalas Asuros, all the, the classic halachas of Machalas Asuros, a food that's prohibited, Rambam says there are other things that Chazal prohibited, even though they have no Ikrimanat Torah, things that have no connection to any Ikrimanat Torah. Again, some aspects of Basar Bechala, many aspects are Drabanan, but they're related to Isurim in the Torah, they're gzeras, to avoid Basar B'chalav Menatara. Some things have no connection to Isra Menatara, the Rambam says. Nevertheless, they were gozer, they prohibited these things as a rabbinic enactment to just avoid getting too close to non-Jews because they were worried about intermarriage. Examples, Rambam gives several examples, what, and included in those examples are Pasakum and Bishalakum. Like Rashi, the Rambam understands that these are, that these are gzeris. Xerus because to avoid, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to promote a, a social goal that Chazal had of keeping Jews and non-Jews apart and not letting them uh, socialize too comfortably. So Chazal already did this. Chazal, these, these halachas became kashrus laws. These are brought in Yeridea in, the, in, close, in close proximity to the standard laws of kashrus, the Basar B'chalav, and so on. So Chazal already did this. Chazal sometimes used the laws of kosher 
to Chazal uh, use the laws of kosher to as a tool to to accomplish certain social goals they had. We're not Chazal. We don't have the same authority necessarily to go around using kashrus as a uh, as a tool to uh, as a lever to enact social policy. But the but the basic idea goes back as far as the Talmud that uh, the Talmud had no qualms. The Mishnah, the Talmud had no qualms about using the laws of kashrus and extending the laws of kashrus in such a way as to uh, enforce certain social norms that they felt were, again, important from a Torah perspective, to enforce, those, to enforce those social norms. Now, in later generations, the question came up repeatedly about, uh, the question used to come up, and there was never much of a debate about it, but the, we do have other examples throughout, the, throughout Jewish history where Jewish communities, where rabbis did use kashrus as a, again, as a lever, as a tool to, uh, to, enforce, to enforce the other, other aspects of social policy, social and economic policy. One of the most famous is a, a fascinating episode in Jewish history. We're not going to get into all the, the halakhic details of it. It's a complex and uh, heavily documented topic. That is the question of what they used to call shchute chutz. Shchute chutz literally means slaughtered outside, slaughtered out of bounds. In Talmudic literature, in the classic, you can look at the Wikipedia page for Shute Chutz, you'll find references to the biblical prohibition discussed in the Talmud, in the laws of Kachim. Karbanos have to be shechted inside Lazara. If you shech the carbon outside Lazara, the carbon becomes puzzle. That's called Shute Chutz. It was slaughtered outside the proper precincts of the, of the temple. But in a kind of rabbinic pun, for several hundred years ago, Shute Chutz took on an alternate meaning. Many communities passed uh, dire edicts, passed uh, very serious, uh, very, uh, passed uh, very strong edicts against importing meat from outside the community without permission of the local community. They, they were essentially protectionist uh, edicts to prevent the import of meat from other communities that were produced by other producers, that were shechted by other shechtim. So many European communities, many Ashkenazic communities, passed these enactments, and this is often referred to in a kind of uh, rabbinic pun as shchute chutz, meat that was shechted outside the, outside the community. Why, why were these bans promulgated? What, what, was the, what was the goal? So there's a lot of discussion in the Akronim about this. We'll, we're not going to get into that many of the primary sources, but I want to take a look at this through the prism of a fascinating court case in the Israeli Bagatz, Petin Gavoa Latzedek, there was, uh, in, the, in the Israeli court system over the last few decades, there have been a number of cases where the government, the courts, clashed with the Rabbanut. The Rabbanut wanted to refuse a heksher to some product, to some, to some producer, and they sued. And the, the producer sued that the rabbis had no business doing this, and the cases went to the Israeli secular court system, including the Bagats, the high court for, for justice, and what these questions often revolved around was there is a so kashrus. So Israel, of course, does not have separation of church and state the way we have it here in the U.S. The, much of the rabbinate is uh, is controlled and regulated and uh, shaped by the state, the official rabbinate. Things are undergoing some interesting evolution now, perhaps under the current government. But certainly for decades, that's been more or less the situation. It will continue to remain so, at least to some extent. Certainly where the government controls and therefore supports and therefore regulates and, uh, and shapes what the Rabbanut can do or not to do, what, what they can do, what they can't do. 
So there is a, a law in one of the laws that governs the that governs the Hachshirim, that governs the Rabbanut Hachshirim, is that that they while that while the authority to grant Hachshirim is given to the chief rabbinate. However, it says there is a paragraph in the law that says the infamous paragraph eleven, Seif eleven, that says b'matan to udat hechsher in the giving of a certification certification of kashrus yitzchashiv harav b'dinei kashrus bolvad. The rabbi is only entitled to take into account the laws of kashrus. He is not entitled to take into account any other considerations. Now, obviously, the question that we have to ask is: Well, what are the laws of kashrus, and what are considered extraneous things to the laws of kashrus? The law itself does not specify what exactly is subsumed under the laws of kashrus and what are considered extraneous considerations. And, of course, the rabbinate has typically argued for an expanded definition of what are considered the laws of kashrus, and others have pushed back against that. And the court has repeatedly, the, the Israeli secular court, the Bagats, maybe other courts, has repeatedly shot down the rabbinate when it tried to argue for a more vigorous expanded definition of expanded definition of uh, Dine Kashrus. In particular, the courts developed a doctrine called Hagarin HaKasheh, the, the hard kernel, or the, the, they're willing to allow you know, some things, maybe that are not strictly in Shulchan Aruch, but they, but they wanted things to be, the, court has, had, the courts have repeatedly held, apparently, that the, that, that the, the Rabbanut HaKasherim are limited to a pretty narrow definition of the, of the laws of Kashrus, and they aren't allowed even other aspects of Torah, even other aspects of halacha, religious observance, if it isn't related to the, a pretty strict and narrow definition of kashrut tamach alim, then the rabbinate is barred from taking into account such considerations when granting or denying a hachshim. So there was a case, there was a major case in the, major case in the, in the Israeli court system, 94, 95 it looks like, between a company called Marbek, Marbek Beit Mitvachayim, Beravon Mugbal, the, a, a meat producer called Marbek, and the, the, they were suing Harabanut Harashit of Netanya, the chief rabbinate of Netanya, Hamoatzad Datit of Netanya, the religious council of Netanya, Harabanut Harashit Li Israel, the chief rabbinate of Israel. This was already an appeal, this was a case that had gone to the, I'm not sure it was an appeal, but it had already gone to the high court, this is at the high court, one of the judges was uh, Aleph Barak, I assume that's Aaron Barak, and the two other judges. And the question was, the Rabbanut of Netanya, supported apparently by the chief rabbinate of Israel, had denied Marbek, this meat producer Marbek, a hechsher. And one of the arguments they made, a primary argument they made, was they invoked the takana of Shkutechutz. I don't know how the, the rule of Shkutechutz is typically invoked today. I'm not familiar with how kashrus agencies typically deal with uh, the rules of Shkutechutz. Obviously, most meat that we consume here is not shechted here. Virtually none of it is shechted here. So I, I don't know in practice how, how real-world modern kashrus agencies approach this question of Shkutechutz, but in this, in this case, in Netanya, in Israel, the local rabbinate invoked the laws of Shkutechutz as a, as a legitimate reason to deny to deny certifying this meat that had been uh, that was going to be produced elsewhere in a different city and under a different under a different rabbinut under a different hechsherim, even though it was a valid hechsher, they said it's we don't have to we don't have to grant certification to this we don't have to accept its kasher status because of the classic halacha of shkutechutz. They said yes, we know the law says that we are limited to taking we are limited when we take into account decisions we are limited to what we take into account to 
Dine Kashrus Bolvad. This is Dine Kashrus. Shutechot for a long time had been regarded for hundreds of years, had been regarded as Dine Kashrus. And Marbek and its lawyers said, no, that's not Kashrus, that's social policy, that, that those were Takanas that communities in Europe made for various reasons. Those should not be considered as the laws of Kashrus. Meat is meat that was shechted properly and prepared properly and doesn't fall afoul of any Takana of Chazal and is certified by a competent authority, is 100% kosher. If you don't want to allow it into your community, because if you have a policy of denying access to shrute chutz, fine, that's policy. You can't call that dine kashrus polvad. And whatever the merits of such a policy is, Israeli law forbids, it forbids uh, local rabbinates from taking such considerations into account. So the court, the court said it's not so simple. The court said if we analyze why why different communities forbade shkute chutz. So they said, as the, as, as, the, as the judge notes in his opinion, he says the, the plaintiff included, uh, included doc- documentation, a very interesting documentation, Chomer Ma'anyen, uh, regarding the, the origins and the, the background of shkute chutz. They say, and they point out, the post can give two reasons, two general reasons for the prohibition of shkute chutz. Some of them were concerned about kashrus, they were concerned that if they didn't have control, that uh, opening the floodgates to stuff imported from outside their jurisdiction, it would be too hard to sort through what was a good heksher, what was not a good heksher, before they had phones, computers, anything. The communications were difficult enough as it is to try to get uh, accurate and reliable information consistently about, about meat that was produced outside your city. would have been hard, would have been fraught with all kinds of problems. And you know, the hadacha, it has to be washed within a certain amount of time, you know, who's, who's, who's washing it on the road, and so on. So, so Samach Ronim said that the reason for Shkutechutz was because there were all kinds of grave problems that, that could come up if we, don't, if we ourselves can't certify the meat. And as a, as a kind of blunt instrument to simply get around all these problems, they instituted Shkutechutz, no meat from outside the local jurisdiction, the Bagat says that this was brought by the Shoah Lameshev, the Yad Ephraim, they quote the Dark Chuva, and others. The other reason, though, is much more of a social policy reason. The other reason is what they call Tam Kalkali, economic reasons. Either because they want, it was protectionist, they wanted to, they wanted to protect the livelihood of the local Shochtim, or for tax reasons, the, the local communities that used to have taxation power over their, their own communities, the Jewish community, would tax tax individuals, they would often tax industries like the Shochtim. So if, if Shechita moves outside the city, then the tax base is moving outside the city, and the city has, has a major loss of revenue. So for these kinds of uh, polit- political economic considerations, the, it was considered harmful to the community, they banned the import of Shechute Chutz. They bring, Akronim said, bring this reason as well, the Chasim Sofer, and others farm bring, bring the economic reasons, the policy reasons, and some Akronim, they say, bring both reasons. They bring the, the, the hardcore kashrus reasons, as well as the, the reasons of, the, of, of safeguarding the interests of the Kehillah. Minchas Elazar. Minchas Elazar is quoted by the Bagat, Zichron Yehuda, and so on. So, this, so the Marbek and its people had argued that Shchutechutz is clearly not kashrus, the meat is perfectly kosher, Whatever the reasons are, they're policy reasons, and then the Rabbanut is not, is not authorized, again, is not authorized to take into account that, uh, such considerations. The judge said he is, 
he says it's true that if it's uh, if it's true that if we were convinced that these were purely economic takanas, if these were purely for social, political, economic reasons, he says, then that's true. That the that 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 that's what the law says. The rabbinate can't take this into account. However, the judge says. This is not correct as, as a matter of the historical record, as a matter of the totality of the halachic literature. He says that it, it's not correct at all. He says the, the most accurate way of describing the takana of Shkute Chutz is that it was a tolada shel ta'amim murkavim. It, it, it was a combination of reasons, a multiplicity of factors. Some of them were what he calls shikule kashrut amitiim. Some of them were, were traditional narrow kashrut considerations. Considerations. Some of them were shikulim, logistiim, bechalkaliim, shonim. Some of them were various economic and logistical considerations. Therefore, he says we can't deny, we can't, we can't necessarily get past, we can't really get past the fact that there are elements of genuine hagarin uh, hakashev, the things that belong to the garin hakashev, kashrus. And uh, certainly, he says the rabbinit, the the, the rabbinut, the, the chief rabbinit. Testified, uh, asserted in, in court that that the reason they were enforcing or the purpose of their application of the takana was indeed for for kashrus reasons. So it's not it's not the court's business. He argues to, to second guess that to challenge that the rabbanut are the experts. If they say if they say that we are enforcing shutechutz because of kashrus considerations, despite the fact that there have been elements of the takana that had to do with uh, political and economic economic considerations. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, there are kashrus considerations as well, and therefore, uh, and therefore, he would not necessarily uh, deny, at least at that stage of his argument, he would not necessarily deny the rabbinate the right to, the right to, uh, in, the right to enforce this takana, in, uh, in in such a case where they claim that it was that it was kashrus. In on the other hand, as I mentioned earlier, the court has. The court has repeatedly struck down cases where where the where where, where the rabbinut has tried to use kashrus to enforce other types of other types of religious uh, religious halacha. They give they they give uh, various examples. Even within kashrus itself, the bagats one struck down a uh, decision of the rabbinut harashit to deny kashrus certification to a slaughterhouse. That was unless it agreed not to do any non-kosher slaughter, where the target market was Jews. As long as the slaughterhouse said we're going to produce kosher meat for the kosher market and non-kosher meat for the general Israeli public who doesn't care, the rabbanut said we're not giving you a hechsher unless you commit to, to not to supply any non-kosher meat to Jews. So the bagat struck that down. The bagat said you can't do that. As long as you know, there's a clear separation in the meat, and the meat that they're marketing as kosher is kosher, the fact that they have a policy of also selling non-kosher meat to uh, non-kosher particular consumers, not your business, the law doesn't grant you that, uh, that leverage. You can't withhold the kosher certification from kosher meat to stop them from selling non-kosher meat as long as they properly distinguish between them. So the bagat said that's not legitimate. Similarly, the, 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 there are a number of other examples there was a case, there, there were cases where, where there were hotels, clubs, other types of institutions where the, where the Rabbanut wanted to deny Hachshirim because there were what they referred to as Mofa'im Biltit Tznuim. There were shows that were uh, immodest, that don't meet the standards of Halachi Tznius. Court says, sorry, food is kosher, you have no right to deny, you have no right to deny Kashrus for such reasons. 
Other examples, they, that they, uh, that you know, there was an importer, again, similar to the first case, there was an importer who was importing both kosher and non-kosher meat. They wanted to deny him certification unless he dropped the non-kosher meat. Court said, you can't do that. And again, the, the discussion always was, what are considered the dine kashrus bilvad, and then this, but the courts have often adopted a narrow interpretation of this, as long as the food itself that's being eaten is, uh, is kosher, then, uh, then you can't deny kashrus. This, this court case in, in Israel, where, where they denied the... Some of these court cases where the court held that because there are mofa'im biltit nuim, immodest shows, immodest performances, not grounds for, for uh, withdrawing the kashrus certification, this had an echo... 30 years ago in New York, in the United States, in the infamous uh, Glatyad affair. So there was a Jewish entrepreneur who began to run kosher cruises. He had a yacht. He would, uh, he would produce kosher cruises around Manhattan, brunch cruises, dinner cruises, called it the Glatyad. And he himself wasn't having uh, immodest performances. The problem was there was dance music, and there was a dance floor, and there were people who danced, social dancing. And there were arguments about it. The Rava Machsher would sometimes turn off the music unless they would, uh, until they stopped dancing. People were very offended. People were very annoyed and insulted. And there was a great hullabaloo about, about it. Eventually, eventually the Hechsher was, eventually the Chafke pulled it. The, the, eventually the Hechsherim pulled it. They said that, uh, as Rabbi Center, the, one of the top people at the Chafke, said, well, we certify an establishment as kosher, it must meet all regulations of Jewish law, including the entertainment. So he actually said that we're not going to certify a yacht if it's uh, we're not going to certify a yacht if it was if it's uh, you know, that we, we we can't we can't certify a yacht if it's not uh, if it's not kosher. The the, the had actually written into their contract a no dancing clause that uh, that 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 the that the that that the contract with 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 the yacht people with the business said that there's a no dancing clause, and they point out that this is the that this is the same conflict that occurred in Israel. The Israel Supreme Court, the Bagats, ruled that based on this this law that denied the rabbinate the power to do that, they said has to be the kashrus of the food itself, can't be entertainment, and entertainment is not a legitimate factor to consider. And the U.S., obviously, we have separation of church and state. The, the agencies are private. They can do what they want. And therefore, the cashless agencies, by and large, were beginning to endure, were beginning to... Uh, the, the, the other organizations as well were starting to introduce no dancing, no dancing clauses uh, in their contracts. The, this was discussed by, by other posts, by Postcom as well. The Rab, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Levine great expert on uh, Jewish business ethics. He has a discussion, not even the kashras per se, he has a discussion, not even the, the certifying agency, whether Glatyat itself had the right to run a cruise in which there would be dancing, whether they themselves were mechuyev al-pi halacha to, if they decide to follow halacha, to block the dancing. He gets into a discussion of l'fnaiver, whether by providing the, the venue and the opportunity, whether they were violating the prohibitions against causing someone to sin. He has a long technical analysis of of whether Lufnaivar applies. Um, Rabbi Levine actually argued Halacha does not compel Glatya to adopt a no dance policy, doesn't compel them to. Certainly they have the, certainly they have the right to if they want, and certainly the Kashrus agency has the right to do that if they want. 
But that was the controversy over the, over the Gladiat business. The Hachshirim preferred not to uh, certify an event that had what they felt were other violations of halachic or hashkafic norms, even if the food itself was technically kosher. In Eretz Yisrael, there was a very interesting argument in terms of the poskim between Rebbe Yehudah de Waldenberg, the Tzitzel Yezer, and Rebbe Vadi Yosef. The question involved giving a hechsher to a hotel. The hotel was willing to comply with all the laws of kashrus. All the food would be prepared, it would all be kosher. However, not all their clientele really cared all that much about kashrus. So, in, I don't know how much the hotel personally cared about kashrus, but in the interest of business interest or whatever their, the reasons were, they were willing to get a legitimate hechsher. However, they said, one thing we want, we want to be able to serve if a customer, if a, if a client orders meat and milk, we want to serve both dishes together and let him mix them, eat them together if he wants, or at least we want to serve, certainly we want to serve milk after meat, we want to serve, for example, ice cream for dessert after steak. So we'll make sure all the food is kosher, but if a customer requests a combination of meat and milk that would be us, or each individual dish will be kosher, but we will serve food to people who will consume them in a way that violates the laws of Basar B'chalaf. And this was important to the hotel for some reason, and they, they specifically requested, demanded, that the hechsher not deny them the right to do that. So the question was, can you give a hechsher in such a case, where all the food is strictly kosher, but the restaurant will serve it to you in such a way that, if you want, you can violate the laws of kashras. Now, we're not going to focus so much on the question of, will that lead to ordinary God-fearing Jews making a mistake, like he'll order steak, he'll see ice cream on the menu, he'll assume it must be parv, he'll order it, and then, by mistake, be nechshel. We'll assume, for, for, for the purpose of our discussion at least, that the, that the policies will be clear, it'll be marked as dairy, whatever it is, that we'll, we'll assume that they make things sufficiently clear that nobody who wants to keep kosher is going to have a problem keeping kosher. Again, you can always argue that mistakes will occur, but uh, that, 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 that's a separate, more technical question which we're not going to get involved in, but... Let's assume, for argument's sake, that that was not a factor, that, en- that it was going to be set up in such a way anyone who wanted, anyone who cared about authentic kashras following all the halachas would uh, not have any problem. But the restaurant would enable, would facilitate those who wanted to eat ice cream after steak, the restaurant would facilitate them doing so. Can you give a heksher under such terms? Tzitzeliezer of Waldenburg was vehemently opposed. He said, absolutely not. No way, no how. This is uh, a grave insult to the laws of Kashrus. This is, uh, we have no right to triage the laws of Halacha and say these are important, these are not important. Yes, of course, he says, it's all drabanan, the as long as they're not cooked together, mixing meat and milk in, in your bowl, on your plate, and certainly eating one after another is only drabanan. The only drabanan, he says, drabanan is more chamer in some ways than daraisa. Chamura divrei sofrim. Divrei sofrim is incredibly important. And he goes on and on in this vein. He brings numerous different precedents for the idea that we will not uh, negotiate with people who do not totally accept the halacha. We will, we will, we will stand up for halachic standards. They don't want a heksher. They won't get a heksher. But we will not compromise on something as fundamental as the laws of Basra B'chalav, even though it's not Basra B'chalav Medaraisa. We are not interested in temporizing and making deals and negotiations uh, with people like this. If you want a heksher, you'll do it properly. Moreover, he said, the, 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 theme of it, the theme of his argument is, we are not going to give our imprimatur to a hotel that does this. Everyone will think that, oh, the cashier's agency gives a heksher, it must be it's not so bad. 
They don't understand all these fine legalistic distinctions between we're saying the food is kosher, but not the way it's served, and the milk and after the meat, that's on you, and so on. People are not going to understand that. This is going to lead to an ad to a perception of a tiru prushim asadavar, that the rabbis don't think it's so bad. Rav Waldenberg was vehemently opposed to this whole plan. One of his primary precedents for this is, a, uh, is an extremely fascinating, widely discussed passage in the Sefer Akedas Yitzchak. Akedas Yitzchak of Yitzchak Arama, he was not a halachist. He, he's, he's, his great work was the Akedas Yitzchak, his commentary, 15th century commentary to the Chumash, the Megillus. But he was considered one of the, the Gidoli Torah of Spain before the expulsion. And he has a, uh, a fascinating, much-discussed passage where there was a proposal, apparently, among the lay leadership of the Spanish communities to have, sounds very modern, but they were going to have, essentially, community-sanctioned brothels. The Jewish men were doing terrible things, adultery and being with non-Jews, which were, A, terrible averis, and B, they could have terrible social consequences, so the, the lay leadership of the community felt, today we would call this uh, harm reduction or harm mitigation, they decide, we, the community, should establish brothels, we'll make sure everyone, everyone there is single, and we'll make sure there are no non-Jews there, therefore we'll give them an outlet, which it's not mutter, we're not thrilled about this, but better that they should have a uh, relatively kosher option, rather than uh, allow the whole thing to be unregulated, which will lead to much more grave problems. The Rebbe Karama was vehemently opposed to this. He said, absolutely not. He says, even if we accept that you're right, that on a strictly utilitarian cost-benefit analysis, the Averis will be in toto less under this system than they would otherwise, doesn't matter, he says. We cannot give the communal sanction to such an institution, since this is unquestionably wrong, even though, yes, it's less wrong than the alternative. We, the community, cannot sanction such a system where we are giving our imprimatur to, a, uh, to such a system. If this becomes known as a, commun- a communal institution, then the fact that we're giving the whole explanation, that we really think it's a terrible thing, but it's less terrible, so it's a lesser of two evils, so it's harm mitigation. At the end of the day, if we the community establish, even implicitly, if we have the community establish such a system, we are, we are giving our imprimatur to Avera, to sin, and that is not acceptable. Says it's Eliezer, the same thing applies here. If we give a hechsher to a restaurant, that, to, a, to a hotel, that has a policy of serving dairy after meat, or serving dairy together with meat, even if uh, we make it clear, we give this careful legalistic explanation, we're only certifying X, and we're not certifying Y, and that's on you, the customer, and so on, and we don't accept this, but it's the best we can do. At the end of the day, that falls afoul of, the, of this rule of the Akedah, the community, the authorities, the establishment, we can never give our imprimatur to such, to, to, to such conduct, even if as a result it'll mean that more of errors are being done. Same thing in our case, even if as a result of denying the heksher, the hotel will simply have no heksher, they'll feel free to serve treif from all day, and all the, all the many traditional people who might otherwise be eating kosher will now be eating treif. Even if that's true, he says, doesn't matter. We can play games with kashras, we can certify something which is wrong, and therefore he was adamantly opposed to this. He says... It is absolutely usher for the Rabbanut to give such a heksher, to, to certify such an establishment. We, on the contrary, we should, uh, we should encourage everyone to boycott the place and to encourage them to do proper kashras, but we can absolutely not give such a heksher. Rav Adi Yosef responded to Rav Waldenberg, 
he said uh, Rav Waldenberg apparently had sent him uh, his sefer when it came out, when it was published, and he says, you know, he said, thanks him very much, it's a great sefer, etc. However, he says, he's not had, he doesn't agree with this tshuva. He quotes Rav Waldenberg's arguments at length, and he says it is fundamentally different from the case of the Akedas Yitzchak. He accepts the basic principle of Rabbi Arama that the community can certify Averis. He says that's true. However, he says that's when you're actually certifying the Avera. If you're saying this brothel is now a state-sanctioned institution, then you're implicitly saying this is okay, and it's not okay, it's wrong. He says here, we are simply certifying that the food is kosher. We are not in any way certifying that you're allowed to eat milk after meat. We're not saying that at all. We're not stopping them from doing that. But lots of people in Israel don't keep kosher. That's the unfortunate reality. We're not sanctioning eating milk after meat. We're simply saying this food is kosher. And it is kosher. It's absolutely kosher. We're not saying this woman is kosher when she's not kosher, when she's problematic. She's less problematic, but she's usher. That's a problem. To say this woman, you can be with her, that's a problem. But to say that this food is kosher, it is kosher. So, and we're not telling you to eat milk after meat. We're not sanctioning that in any manner, shape, or form. So he feels it's fundamentally different from the case of the, of the Akedah. We are simply saying something is mutter that is mutter. The fact that overall the establishment has a policy that we don't approve of, they, ha- they would have the policy anyway. If we don't certify it, they'll have the exact same policy. We're not causing them to have this policy. We're not certifying the policy. We're simply issuing a limited seal of approval to something that is actually 100% mutter. This ice cream is 100% kosher. This steak is 100% kosher. You shouldn't eat them together. Absolutely not. But at the end of the day, the ice cream is kosher. The steak is kosher. You can enjoy both of them, just not together. And if you choose to eat them together, that's on you. That's not on us. And therefore, if Avadia felt that this was... He adopted a much more utilitarian perspective, even though he agreed to the principle of the Akedah. He says that in this case it doesn't apply... It'll help Yerei Shemayim find a hotel with Akhtar. It'll help those maybe who don't care as much also. But at the end of the day, he felt that this is not the same thing as certifying something which is wrong. He felt that this is okay. And in the course of his discussion, he mentions a tshuva of the Igris Moshe. Igris Moshe discussed a, a similar scenario. He discussed a case, again, involving the, the Hechsher of meat, where... The certifying agency, I don't know what the, what the facts, what the, case, what the details of the case actually was, were, but the case was the certifying agency would be able to guarantee the primary kashrus concerns. They could guarantee that it was uh, shechted properly and that the basic chalev was taken out and so on. The basic things you need, they, they could guarantee were done by inspecting it after the fact, whatever it was, but there were certain aspects of the process that they couldn't oversee, certain relatively less significant aspects of the process that they couldn't absolutely certify were being done correctly. And, and anyone who was a medactic ba'alacha, anyone who's a Yerushamayim, upon seeing such a heksher, still really should not eat this meat, because drabanans are also important, and the heksher wasn't really satisfactory. But it, at least it accomplished uh, 90% of the job, that the meat was mostly kosher. There were still some non-kosher aspects of it, but it was much more kosher than it would have been without a heksher at all, so to speak. So they asked Ramosha, can we give such a hechsher? The hechsher will make it very clear that uh, this is not totally kosher. It's better than nothing, but it's not totally kosher. Is that a legitimate form of hechsher? So Ramosha says, kind of very pragmatically, very logically, he says it depends. It depends on what we alluded to before. It depends on whether the reality is that the wording of the hechsher, that the, the details of the hechsher will be clear enough that those who are Shomrei Torah mitzvahs and, and don't want to compromise even on 10% of kashrus will be able to be aware of this and to avoid it. 
He says, if it can be done in such a way that there's no chashash takala, that anyone who wants to keep kosher will, will have the opportunity to realize what's happening and to avoid it. Then he says, it is a good idea. He says, he says, then it's a good idea. Even though it's not really kosher, but if it's more kosher, that is a good, uh, a good heksher to give. And that's the part of Avadya brings a proof from to his case. Ramosha goes on and he says, if however, it's, it, the, if the reality is such that people won't realize, even if you write on the label, not fully kosher, just uh, we avoid 90%, but not fully kosher, people don't read labels, people just see the name of some cashers agency, they stop reading. If that's the reality, which I would suspect it probably is, but if that's the reality, he says, then, then it's usher. Because even though it's a trade-off, he says, you'll be saving people who are less meticulous about halacha from eating real treif, but at the cost of uh, being machshel some yere shemayim who do care, who are just not, don't know how to read labels, that's not a trade-off worth making, he says. We should be more interested in protecting those who care more deeply about kashrus than those who care less about kashrus. But if the case is that the, there won't be any mistake, that people will understand that it's not fully kosher, those who want to avoid it, so there's no real downside, and the benefit is just that for those who are not really that faithful to the laws of kosher, but this way we'll be eating a food that's much more kosher, then he thinks it is a good idea. And as a proof for this, as a proof for this doctrine, kind of the opposite of Akedah, that at least in some cases, harm reduction is a, is a good policy, he quotes a Gemara in Sota. The Gemara is discussing immodest behavior by groups of men and women who are singing together. The Gemara talks about different types of singing, you probably have to be there to understand exactly what we're talking about, but the Gemara talks about Zimri Gavri Vani Nashi, if the men, if the, if, the, if the men sing and the women respond to the singing with their part of the song, that's Pritzus, that's licentiousness. However, Zimri Nashi Vani Gavri, if you do it the reverse way, the women sing and then the men respond but with their part, that's even worse. That's... Uh, that's Eshben Oris. That, that's uh, not just Pritzus, that's like fire, and the, the, that, that's terrible. So the Mara says, who cares? It's all wrong. So why are we interested in, uh, in grading how wrong everything is? Wrong is wrong, and you shouldn't be doing it. It's not like one is Mutra, one is Asr. They're both Asr. So then why, why is it important to grade how egregious each one is? So the Mara says, that sometimes, at least to begin with, we can only go after one. We can't uh, perfect the world in, in one fell swoop. We have to do things gradually. Post can derive a lesson here that in Chinuch, in policy, you can't, uh, you can't change the world overnight. Rome wasn't built in a day. You have to do things gradually. You have to progressively improve things. So, at least in, at least in some cases, the Gemara says, you can't be mavatal the whole thing, and you have to, uh, and you have to be mavatal only one, so therefore, which one is worse? Whichever one is worse, you have to go after that one first, and then go after the other one when you have the wherewithal to go after the second one as well. Ravadi Yosef actually brings this, brings this Gemara in another context. Ravadi Yosef was asked a very interesting question by a school for girls in Israel. And the administration wanted the girls to dress modestly in accordance with halacha, but the girls weren't doing that. They weren't there yet. The school, I don't know what the reality was, but the school apparently, the, 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 the givens, the assumptions in this case are, the school apparently had the, had the option of imposing some kind of dress code. They could either ban short skirts, mini skirts, or they could ban pants, but not both. Somehow the, they have to give the girls the option to either wear short skirts or to wear pants. So the question is, which one should they let the girls do? They can't, they can't ban everything. 
So Rav Avadia has a long tshuva in which he basically argues that miniskirts are very problematic because shok bisha erva and uh, revealing the, the upper leg is a problem. However, pants, he says, mikra din is not really a problem. Again, he recommends women shouldn't wear pants. At the end, he says they really shouldn't do that either. But pants, in principle, is certainly much less serious, at least if they're not tight pants. I'm not necessarily talking about tight jeans and so on, but pants in general is much less of a problem than skirts and short skirts. Therefore, he says, so if you can only do one, then they should wear pants and not wear short skirts. Based on this Gemara, he says, the Gemara in Sota says that we don't say the perfect is the enemy of the good. We don't say if we can't get to perfection, we do nothing, and we just throw up our hands and say we can't do anything. If you could be, if you could be mevatul one before the other, then do it. So since short skirts, or Avadia says, is unquestionably worse than pants, therefore he says, if we, can, if, we have the, if we have the possibility of banning one and not both, we should first ban the short skirts and allow the pants. So Rabosha says a similar thing about his, uh, about his, his case of, of, the, of the Heksher. We can't, uh, we can't get this company to produce meat that's totally kosher. We can't certify it, we can't get them to do it. Whatever it is, we, we, in, in the world we live in, perfection is not an option. We can't, we, we can't get this meat to be 100% kosher. But if we can make it largely kosher, if we can eliminate some of the problem, he says, that's great. As long as we're not being martial people and, and fooling them into thinking that it's good. As, as, as long as you can get around that problem, he says, that's good. 90% kosher is better than 100% treif, he says. Therefore, Moshe says, the same principle applies. In, in the real world, we, we sometimes have to work with harm reduction. If we can get something to be mostly kosher, that's an improvement, and therefore we should do that, as long as, again, as long as we're not being machshel anybody in, who, who otherwise would be careful and kashrus in, in an Isser. And that, that's why the, the other of Avadia, the one we began with, makes the same point, makes the same point in his case of the... of the... Heksher of the hotel that wanted to serve dairy and meat in prohibited ways, he says, don't give them a heksher, then everything will be trafe there. There'll be pure trafe. This way, it's basically kosher. You don't have the problem of Akedas Yitzchak because we're not directly giving our imprimatur to something that's also. We're just giving our imprimatur narrowly to the foods itself. And it's better that, better to have that than to have nothing, he says. And therefore, Ravavadya thought that the Ravadya thought that the heksher was worth was, was very much worth giving. There's another issue, aside from these questions of whether the company has, the, has a duty to avoid, avoid giving its imprimatur to Yisurim, or a problem of Lufnaiver by allowing people to do Yisurim, aside from this whole question of whether the, of whether, again, the establishment, like Hades Yitzchak, aside from this whole question of whether there's a problem with giving our imprimatur to a situation that's not kosher in the broad sense, even if the food is narrowly kosher, there is another issue, which I've long been concerned with. The halacha is, in the laws of Gneva, in the laws of theft, you're not allowed to buy stolen property. Why? So Midrash Rabbah puts it uh, picturesquely. Midrash Rabbah says that the cholekim haganav, the fence, or the, the, the receiver of stolen goods, maybe even the consumer, is worse than the ganav himself. Why? Gives a mushal, it says, there was once a king who had a policy that thieves were, their lives were spared, but fences or those who trafficked in stolen goods were executed. People couldn't understand, what's that all about? He said, I'll show you. So he said, everyone come to this field at a certain time. They brought out weasel treats. I don't know exactly what weasel treats are, but apparently you go to the pet store and you find weasel treats, and then they, they put down the weasel treats, the weasels all ran out, they grabbed the treats, they went scurrying off to their weasel holes to go hide away their precious treats. He said, come back tomorrow. So by the next day, he had his men stuff up all the weasel holes, and he put out the treats again. 
The weasels were about to grab all the treats, but then they noticed that their holes were all stuffed up and they had no safe place to, uh, to hide their treats. I guess it was more than they could eat on the spot. So the weasels just, I guess, uh, disappointing, dis- were disappointed, but they just let the treats go and they walked away. The king says, you see, this is the point. Thieves themselves are not the problem. The problem is those who enable the thieves by trafficking in stolen goods. That's why it doesn't really explain why he's more strict to them than the thieves themselves, but I, certainly it illustrates the, 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 the severity of dealing in stolen goods. A person shouldn't tell himself, I'm not the thief, you know, I'm just the one who benefits from theft after the fact. It doesn't work like that. If you are going to be the, the one who makes crime pay, then you are doing an Avera, and, uh, and that is a problem. Rambam Paskins this way, you're not allowed to buy stolen property. It's a terrible Avera. Why? Because by doing so, you're you're strengthening the activities of Avera Avera. You're causing him to steal more. Because if he won't find buyers, he won't steal. And that's why it says in Mishle, that by, by buying, by receiving stolen goods, you're doing a terrible Avera. So it stands to reason that if a company engages in problematic conduct in the production of its goods, then you, the customer, are not allowed to buy those goods. Are the goods kosher? In a very strict technical sense, yes. But you're not allowed to buy the goods because the... Not just because you're giving your imprimatur to the... Somehow, like the the rabbi who gives a hechsher, maybe he's giving his imprimatur. There's another problem. The problem is that by... By, ma- by making it so that crime pays, that sin pays, that uh, problematic conduct is going to be economically, economically, uh, economically viable, economically remunerative. Therefore, you are, therefore you are being machzikid of Ravera, causing them to sin more. So I've raised this question in the past. Uh, Rabbi Slifkin has made this point about factory farming, all types of things that go on on farms. Some people... So, Maybe there are some shitas that it's actually mutter, but as we've discussed in the past, it's not so clear. There are many practices which our poskim are very uncomfortable with. Some of them might even be usser. So the question is, if, if, there, is a, if there is a farm, a, uh, a food producer that engages in problematic behavior, are you allowed to buy from that producer? The answer would be no, because assuming that it's clear that it's usser, you're being machzikid over Avera. You can't do that. You're causing more Averas to be done. You can't just say, it's not on me, that's his business, uh, my hands are clean. Halakha doesn't recognize that. Halakha says, no, that if, uh, if he's doing something wrong, then you're doing something wrong, because you're enabling him to do something wrong. The question now becomes, what if they're doing is something that's not strictly usser, it's unethical, it's machlok zaposkin, what we would call a midas chasidus in Halakha. The question is, how does that translate into being machzikid over Avera? Do you say that if I want to be a chasid, in the same way, if he does an Avera, I shouldn't buy from him because I'm Maxikid over Avera. If he does something that's not the behavior of a Chassid, <coughs> I also shouldn't buy from him because I don't want to encourage people to not be Chassidim. What do you say? No, Chassidus is his business. And as long as it's something that's Mutter Mikra Din, I don't have to worry about, uh, I don't have to worry about buying it. I'm not the one doing the lack of Midas Chassidus. You know, personally, it seems to me that the whole idea of Midas Chassidus is that you believe on some level the conduct is wrong. So even if it's not strictly prohibited by halacha, it's morally problematic. So it would, see, it would seem that you can make a good case for the idea that someone who wants to be a chassid, someone who wants to uh, do its own kono, should say, that's not the right thing to do, even though it's not strictly usher, and therefore I shouldn't buy, I shouldn't buy from a company that is, that's producing its goods by problematic, halachically problematic, hashkafically problematic, unethical behavior. I shouldn't do that. This was, of course, a whole issue decade or two ago, the whole uh, Hechsher Tzedek, Mugin Tzedek, and all that. 
where different uh, left-wing groups wanted to include into Kasheris concerns about uh, social justice, uh, mistreatment of workers, mistreatment of animals. The right, the, the Orthodox right, very much rejected that. They fought it bitterly on the ground. They, they insisted on taking a very narrow view of Kashrus. They said, that's not Kashrus, that, that's something else. As we've seen, that's not really true, because, first of all, you can argue semantics. It is Kashrus, it's not Kashrus. But as we've seen, there is ample grounds for the notion that a, a, a Kashrus agency shouldn't be giving its imprimatur to something that's an Avera. Now, again, most of the cases we discussed, the, the imprimatur was to the actual food service was an Avera, not an Avera that was done down the line in their, uh, in their production. But a similar argument could certainly be made that if, it's, uh, if what they're doing is usser, if, if, if they were doing it by violating a clear isser of Chil Shabbos, let's say, or they were stealing in order to produce their food, one could certainly argue that the same concern would say, no, you can't, you can't give your imprimatur to this, because yes, the food is technically kosher under a very narrow sense, maybe according to the bagats, it would be, uh, that, that's, that's not from the garin hakasheh of kashrus, but according to the broader standards that Rabbanon have often asked for, we can certify things that are problematic. One could certainly argue that if averis are being done in the production of the food, A, we shouldn't be giving our imprimatur to these averis, and B, you're not allowed to buy such food, because that's cholik and magana. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to get, do business with, uh, with products, you're not allowed to purchase products that are being produced via yisurim, because by doing so, you're causing more yisurim to be done. The question becomes, though, what do you do with questions that are, that are, that are gray? And a lot of these questions are gray. They, they, you, you'd prefer that they treat the workers better, but it's not strictly against the law. They operate in countries where it's within the law, even though it wouldn't be legal in the U.S., let's say, or it's you know, the, animal, the animal rights stuff, it's uh, the Tzar Balechaim stuff, it's, it may not be strictly usir, it might be a machlokas, yeshal milismach for them to do it, but should you, uh, should you say that I want to do things the right way, I'm, I'm, I'm strict about my lulav, I'm strict about my eruv, I should be strict about my, what kind of food I buy as well. Rice Lifkin makes this argument that the, someone who wants to be medactic, someone who wants to be pious, should certainly say that if my food is being produced in problematic ways, I shouldn't, I shouldn't tolerate it. I should. But the counter-argument would be that as long as it's not strictly usser, and I'm not the one doing it, uh, that's their decision. It's not, it's, not, it's not black and white, it's not usser, I'm not the one doing it, and uh, perhaps that is, that's less of an issue. But I'll call upon them anything that is, anything, anytime we're dealing with a strict isser, where something is, is, actually, is actually being done that's usser, one could certainly argue that that could, be, that could and probably should be rolled into kashras. People say you know, what the, some of the orthodox right said, well, why don't you bring this up uh, with regard to washing machines as well? Why are you picking on food? Well, the answer would be, no one's asking me to certify a washing machine. Before I certify anything, yes, if, I, if there are problems, I shouldn't certify it. I'm being asked to certify food, so I shouldn't certify it unless everything is good in, in, in its production. There are no errors being done. In terms of the other ISR, the ISR on the consumer of, uh, of not, buying, not buying products that were produced by Averis, yes, if you know your washing machine was produced by people doing Averis, then in all likelihood you should not buy that washing machine. Again, assuming it's a clear-cut question of Avera, where you know that the, you know that the product is being produced by, through doing Averis, that the Averis are essential to the production, then yes, you should probably not buy that washing machine. What to do in cases where, again, what to do in cases where the infractions are... Uh, are less, uh, are, are less well-defined, or less clear, whether infractions are either machlokes or midas chasidus, or the facts often aren't clear, that, uh, that I concede is a much tougher question.